we're doing a sermon series uh, for the last six weeks, the next couple of weeks. We've got about two more weeks after tonight. No, exactly, not about, exactly two more weeks after tonight. Uh, called Welcome to Sound City Bible Church. And for us, we are a newly reforming, newly replanting church as of the first of the year. And so here uh, in the late spring, early summer, we're taking some time to kind of reset who we are as a church and explaining the foundational doctrines, the foundational values, the things that really support and undergird and, and shape who we are as a church. We were talking and praying this morning, and one of our uh, volunteer leaders, uh, he's an engineer by trade, and he was praying, he said, God, thank you that you know buildings have to be built on strong foundations or else they won't last very long, and thank you that we get to do this sermon series on foundations. I thought that's a fitting prayer for an engineer to pray, but it's a good metaphor. It's a good analogy for us as a church because we want to be a church that is founded on the word of God, something that doesn't change according to cultural whims or something that doesn't change according to time. And we also want to be a church that by God's grace could leave a lasting legacy. My hope and my prayer is that decades from now, years from now, when many of us are long uh, dead and gone, there would still be a group of people gathering to worship Jesus and uh, proclaiming his goodness. Amen? Would you like to see that? Wouldn't that be something that'd be great to see? And so that's why we're trying to build these foundations for us. Today we're in uh, the second week of kind of a little doctrinal mini-series, the, the beliefs, the biblical doctrines that to us are are foundational. I'm going to begin our time by reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there and read along with me if you would. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. I'll read that passage. We'll pray and then we'll get to work tonight um, unpacking and explaining what it is uh, that God might want to teach us tonight. Let's read this. 1 Timothy 4 starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that in your word we can see who you are, your character, your attributes, your nature, God. We also thank you that in your word we can see what it is that you have done to save and rescue and redeem a people like us. God, I pray tonight that that you would give all of us ears to hear truth from your word. May we have soft, uh, teachable hearts, God, that we might be drawn closer to you. God, would you guard my lips? Would you help me to only speak and to teach that which is in accordance with your truth? God, may Jesus get all of the glory and all of our attention tonight. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. I want to contend that what you think, what you believe, will have a huge impact, have a huge influence on the way that you live your life. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if it doesn't impact your life in some way, you don't actually believe it. If you say that you believe something and it doesn't shape your life, it doesn't shape the way that you live, I would submit to you that you probably don't actually believe it. We know that this is true in in simple matters, right? Things that you believe will cause you to act in a certain way. I can remember being in high school. One time I had a dream. 
And in my dream, one of my high school buddies had been just a total scoundrel. He had done something to really make me mad. And I woke up and I was in a bad mood for about 30 minutes and I almost called him and shoot him out before I remembered, oh yeah, that was something I just imagined and made up in my mind, right? I know I'm probably not the only person that's ever done that. Anybody ever had that? You woke up mad at somebody because of a dream, right? I also remember hearing a story from one of my wife's friends uh, at, a, at a former job where she worked at. <clears throat> this coworker, when she graduated from high school, she never got the how checkbooks work talk. And so she got her first checking account, she got her first checkbook and thought, if I have checks, then I have money. That did not go well for her, and she spent the next several years cleaning up a, a big mess that she had made in terms of spending money that she did not have. She had a missing belief. She had a missing understanding, and it deeply impacted the way that she lived her life. Now, if that's true of simple matters, of practical and earthly matters, how much more true is it of spiritual matters, things that have ultimate value, ultimate significance in our lives? What, what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this passage in 1 Timothy 4, he says, look, it's a good thing to be trained physically. If you exercise and eat right, he said, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. He says, but what's more important is for you to be trained in godliness because that's going to impact this life and the life to come. In this passage we read, the Apostle Paul gives an instruction. He says, you need to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The Apostle Paul stresses how important doctrine is in the life of a Christian, in the life of somebody who follows Jesus. And we're dealing with matters of eternal significance. We're talking about salvation. We are talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about not just this life, the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, however many years that God would give you in this life. We're talking about things of eternal significance. So when we talk about doctrines, I, I, I do not want to, at, at the risk of sounding uh, hyperbolic, some of the things I will say to you tonight are of the most significance that you will ever hear. It's not because I'm anything special, it's because the word of God is, amen? And it's because these truths will have a deep, if you allow them, will have a deep impact on your life, things that will shape your life for this time on this earth, as well as in the life and in the age to come. So that is why we are taking time to talk about doctrine. Now, let me give you just three brief introductory thoughts. The first one is this. There's a common cultural refrain that goes something like this. Hey, it's okay if you believe what you believe. You just should keep those beliefs to yourself and don't let them spill out on anybody else. Raise your hand if you've heard some form of, of that statement, right? It's cool that you have those beliefs, but you should just really keep them to yourself. First of all, it doesn't work for one of two reasons. The first reason is this. That's not how belief works. Like I said, if it doesn't affect your life, if it doesn't shape how you live in some way, shape, or form, then I would submit to you that you don't actually believe it. But here's the second reason why it doesn't work, and this is the ironic portion of the sermon. When somebody says, I believe that you should keep your beliefs to yourself, why didn't they? <laughs> you just told me your beliefs. Uh, well, okay, but I just believe. No, I, I understand what you're saying. You're saying that we shouldn't be forceful in trying to make people believe something. And I would agree with that. The Christian faith should not be forced upon people. Amen? The gospel is the free gift, the free offer of God's salvation. We don't force that on anyone. Yet, at the same time, we should not be ashamed to say, yes, I hold these beliefs, and they do impact, and they do influence the way that I live my life. That's the nature of belief. Number two, just by way of introductory thought, is this. Not every belief is of equal importance, okay? There are some things that if you believe them or if you don't believe them, the Bible would teach your soul is in jeopardy. 
If you reject certain truths, if you believe certain things, uh, you can be saved eternally. There are other things that are less important, right? I always like the question, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Who cares, right? It's one of those speculative things. We can talk about those things, but they're just not that important. Now, those are two extremes, and there's a gradation between. Jesus is the Son of God. He lived. He died. He rose again. He is the path to God. That is of ultimate importance. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? That is of no importance. Now you can run the gamut between. And hear me on this. To say that some things are more important than others does not mean that those other things are unimportant. There are important things that we can talk about, things that we should have discussions about as Christians, but they're just not of ultimate importance. And Christian maturity means we can distinguish between things that are of ultimate and secondary importance. And then lastly, the third thing I would like to give you just by way of introduction is this. The study of doctrine should lead us, rightly done, should lead us to worship. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? Here's, here's the risk that we run when we study doctrine. The risk that we run and I mean this very seriously for us tonight here in this room, <clears throat> the risk that we run is that we could study doctrine to get everything right. Yes, I have studied doctrine. Yes, I've got all my I's crossed and my T's dotted or whatever backwards, right? I'll fix it at the well, next week's service. You know, like the idea that, that I'm just going to study doctrine so I can be more correct than thou. No, we study doctrine so that we can know God. We want to think correctly. We want to think accurately because God is so amazing. And when we start to understand these truths that he's taught us, it ought to lead our hearts to respond in worship. If you're studying doctrine and it makes you more coldly intellectual or more, God forbid, prideful or superior to someone else, then it's not true study of doctrine. It always should lead us to a place of humility and worship of God. Amen? And so that's our goal for tonight. As a matter of fact, as we go through these doctrines that I'm about to unpack for you, I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, this would be a really good thing to write at the top of your notes. Write down this question. How will this help me worship Jesus? As we go through these five different doctrinal points we're going to look at tonight, how will this help me worship Jesus? Not, do I have everything right, but how will this help me worship Jesus? And ask yourself that question. Like I said, we're kind of doing three weeks on these doctrinal statements. Last week, Pastor Shane covered the first five, you know, five little topics like the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Scriptures. You know, just real, real minor stuff like that, right? Uh, that's sarcasm, by the way, for those of you who are not uh, acquainted with my love language. And I thought last week, I'm listening to him go, I'm like, man, Pastor Shane is just killing it. He did such a great job of just weaving these doctrines together. This is going to be easy. And then I sat down to prepare my five this week, and I thought, whose lunatic idea was it to try to do five major doctrines all in one sermon? Then I looked up in the mirror and said, oh yeah, that was me, unfortunately. So here's the five we're going to cover tonight. You ready? Creation, just a little topic. Humanity, Satan and demons, oh yeah, sin in the fall, and salvation. If you're a note taker, you are in luck. You, are in you have struck gold tonight, my friends. You are, you are in for a real treat. Here's what I want to do, though. Like I said, I want us to not examine this from a, do we have everything right, but how will this help me worship God? And I want you to see how all of these flow together, painting a beautiful picture, a beautiful narrative of God creating a world, loving it, this world falling into sin, but him redeeming us through his son, Jesus Christ. So with that said, let's dive right in. The first one is this creation. By the way, I'm going to read to you a series of statements that we as the elder team have, have been working on to kind of summarize our core beliefs on each one of these. I'll read you the statement. I'll pull out a few main points, and we'll kind of go into that rhythm throughout. So first one is this, creation. God 
out of nothing, created everything that has been and will ever be, including both the visible universe and the unseen spiritual realm. He did so as an act of his will, an expression of his power and wisdom, an act of his love, and a display of his glory. Before mankind's rebellion, God's creation was perfect and free from the devastating effects of sin. Let me give you four main ideas we want to draw out from this statement, okay? The first one is this. There is a creator, God. On the scale of important to non-important, where would you think that that one should rank? That one should probably peg the meter, right? There is a creator God. So right away, we as Christians are distinguished from uh, pure naturalists, atheists, or maybe even some agnostics. We do believe that there is a creator God. The first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We are not here by random chance. We are not here by cosmic good luck. We are here with design and with purpose from a God who is powerful, powerful enough to create everything that we see. I would also say that the Bible teaches on this point that there is only one creator God. Certain spiritualities would teach that the gods, multiple gods, were maybe in conflict and one of the gods died and fell to the earth and his body turned into the universe, various things like that. No, the Bible would say there is only one creator God and he alone created all that we see, both visible and invisible. Number two, I want you to see this. God is distinct from his creation. Have you heard of the phrase or the term pantheism? Pantheism is the idea that everything we see is God or is a part of God. So the trees are God, the mountains are God, that chair is God, this bottle of water is God, your spouse is God. And there's some people are like, no, that's theory broke down right there, right? I'm God, we're all part of God. No, the Bible clearly teaches that God is distinct from his creation. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So before there were ever trees, before there ever were oceans, before there ever were duckbill platypi, or whatever the plural of platypus is, right? Before there was anything, God existed. So God is distinct from his creation. However, I would encourage us, we do not want to take it too far. Have you ever heard of the phrase deism? Deism is the belief that there is a God, he created everything, but he kind of like wound it up like a clock and then set it on the shelf and just kind of left it to run on its own. No, the Bible would teach that even though God is distinct from his creation, he is deeply and intimately involved, that he cares very much. He is not distant, he is not far off, he is not aloof, as some would try to say. Number three, he created the universe as an expression of his character. I want you to see that God did not create because he was bored. Last Monday on Memorial Day, I woke up and I was bored because I had the day off of work. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go buy a bunch of rocks and I'm going to build a fire pit. And just like that, Aaron said, let there be fire pit. And there was fire pit that afternoon. That is a terrible picture for God's creation of the universe. The Trinity was not sitting around one day in heaven thinking, you know what, we're pretty great together, Father, Son, Spirit, but if only there was just some more, then we would be really happy. No, the biblical teaching is that God created to display his glory, to display his character, to display who he is. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 says, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. 
So this week when I went with my, my family and my sister's family out to Snoqualmie Falls and we saw the, the thousands and millions of gallons just pouring over the falls, that's a display of the power and the faithfulness of God. Or when we went down uh, yesterday to the, to the downtown Edmonds area and we saw the Puget Sound and the sunset and the mountains, that's a display of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God, right? I remember watching a documentary a few, year ago, few years ago on the planet Jupiter and other than the Earth, Jupiter is my favorite planet. Uh, I love the planet Jupiter. It's massive, it's huge. And here's what's fascinating about Jupiter. Jupiter has this spot on it, you know? You know what that spot is? It's a hurricane that is three times larger than the Earth. And it has been going on for 400 years that we know of. That's when scientists first started noticing this giant hurricane. 400-year-old hurricane, three times the size of the Earth. I'm watching this documentary on the Discovery Channel, and I don't know how else to explain it, but I just had a little God moment where I just started crying because I was overwhelmed at just how big and huge and powerful God is. And then my wife came home, and she's like, why are you crying? What are you watching? He's like, I'd rather not say. She's <laughs> like, she probably thought I was watching the Mariners postgame show or something, right? Like, I'm sorry, that was mean. Uh, but I just remember having this moment where I'm watching just the glory of God on display in this massive planet of Jupiter and being overwhelmed with his glory. When was the last time you were overwhelmed with the glory of God? He created to display his character, to display his glory, to display what he is like. And number four, God created everything perfect. Throughout Genesis, it says he created, he saw, it was good. He created, he saw, it was good. He created, he saw, it was good. You get to the end of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 31. It says, on the sixth day, he saw everything that he had created, and it was, do you know what it is? Very good. I'm going to get into this more later, but the reason why there is sickness, the reason why there is calamity, the reason why there is sin, the reason why there is devastation, the reason why there is death is because of mankind's sin and rebellion against God. But God is a perfect God, and in his original creation, everything that he made was perfect. Now, I would put these before you. These are for us. These are the non-negotiables. And I would say this, a lot of Christians can really get into it over the subject of creation. I'm not even talking about a pure atheistic evolution versus a Christian creation. I'm talking about within Christian circles, there can be many different opinions, many different perspectives. And please hear me on this. I am not saying that those things are not important. I am saying what is of ultimate importance is that we understand that there is a creator God who made everything that we see. Amen? You can be a Christian, a born-again, saved, blood-bought, redeemed Christian, and believe in either young earth creationism or maybe a form of theistic evolution, that God used evolution to, to, to bring things as they are. You can believe either one of those and genuinely be a Christian. You cannot, however, be a Christian and believe that there is no creator God or that all things are part of God. That is not orthodox, historic Christian belief. So again, please hear me. I'm not saying those other things aren't worth discussing or are not important. I'm just saying of ultimate importance, maturity helps us to see what's of the most importance. And so for us as a church, we want to set that as a baseline. So there's a creator God. He made everything that we see. He made things that we don't even see. But in all of his creation, he had one special, valued, treasured possession, the, the jewel in his crown, as it were. Do you know what it was? Mankind. 
humanity. Let me read you our statement on humanity. God created mankind in his image and likeness in only two equal yet complementary forms, male and female, each with significant dignity, value, and worth. Humanity occupies a unique space in God's created order, preeminent amongst all he created. Humanity is above the animals, yet below God himself. Again, let me draw out a few points. The first one is this, foundational. We as human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. All human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. Agreed? All. Genesis 1, 26 through 27, it's, it's worth reading at length. Listen to this. God said, let us, there's the Trinity, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I will confess to you that can be a hard term to define with precision, but let me give you a couple things what it's like. It's like we bear a strong family resemblance to our father. Any one of you have children or maybe you have people in the family where the kid just looks so much like the parent, you kind of say, oh, they're really just a, you know, a chip off the old block. They're, they're just like their dad or they're just like their mother. Anybody have you know, family members, relatives? Like, it's a little bit like that. When you look at the child, you can see a form of the parent. My second oldest daughter uh, really looks like my sister. I don't know how all the genetics and all that stuff work, but she really looks like my sister. And there are times when I look at her, I'm like, man, it's like going back in time and being a kid again and remembering, you know, playing with my sister when we were little. And then my sister came to visit this last week. And she's like a grown-up and everything now. But still, seeing the, the two of them side by side, it was like I went back in time 20 years and I freaked out a little bit. Because she just really reminds me of her. It's a little bit like that. We are created in the image and the likeness of God. We, we look like the one who made us. We bear a, a resemblance to him. Now, there are attributes of God that he does not share with us. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. God doesn't share that one with us. God is omnipresent. That means he is all places, everywhere, at the same time. That's not us. But there are things that he shares with us. God is love, and we can love. God is wisdom. We can have wisdom. God is truth. We can learn things. God is all of these other attributes that he does share with us. We are not God, but we are in many ways like God. In his image and likeness means that we, like a mirror, we're meant to reflect who God is. We're created in the image and likeness of God. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing is this, that we hold a unique space in God's creation. Psalm 8, the, the, the writer David puts it this way, just beautifully. It's a beautiful uh, prayer to God. He says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So we see from this passage, we're lower than God, but we're above the animals. 
There are some so-called Christian cults that would try to tell you, if you do these certain things, or you believe this certain way, you can be not just like God, you can be God. Or you can be a God, and they elevate humanity to a place that is beyond what the Bible would teach. But conversely, our culture today basically says that men and women, particularly men, are nothing more than just slightly more evolved animals. And so we shouldn't be surprised when men act like animals because that's just what their instinct uh, caused them to do. You've heard that, right? We're just really lucky animals, slightly more evolved, and we've got opposable thumbs. No, the Bible says that we occupy a very unique space in God's creation. We are not as high as God, but we are crowned with glory like him. And although we do share some similarities with the created animal world, we are not like the animals because we are uniquely created in the image and the likeness of God. I actually want this to be an encouragement for some of you. I think there are some of you who you feel a great weight of shame. You feel beat down. You feel lowly. Obviously, we don't want to be prideful or narcissistic, but it is not a bad thing for me to look you in the eyes and say that you are precious in God's sight because you were created in his image and likeness. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you are far too prone to hear the lie of the enemy that says, oh, you're just not really that valuable. You're worthless. And some of you really need to hear that you hold a special place of affection in God's heart because you're created in his likeness. Number three, from this doctrine, we gather the equality of all human beings. All men and women are equal because we were all created in the image and likeness of God. Galatians 3.28 is a famous verse from the Apostle Paul. And this. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The doctrine of the creation of humanity in the image of God means that the Christian church should always hold racism to be a serious evil that it is. Let me say it again. Racism is a horrific, God-offending sin. To say that one group of people is better than another group of people because of ethnic heritage or, or skin color or because of economic status or whatever, because of gender. Men are not better than women. All human beings are equal in God's sight in terms of their value and their dignity and their worth. Racism is a horrific sin. The church doesn't always have the best reputation in that regard, but the truth of God's word still stands despite the ways in which people mess it up. It means that we don't take advantage of the weak or the helpless. If all people are created in the image and likeness of God, that includes those with disabilities, with handicaps, with, with learning defects, with all sorts of things. It means that we as Christians should have uh, the utmost of care for those that are even yet unborn, those who have not been born yet, who are still being in the womb, that Christians ought to always have a tremendous amount of love and care for preserving life because life is created in the image and likeness of God. I know that this topic has gotten highly politicized in, a, in the last few decades in our nation. It is not a political issue. I'm here to tell you that it's a very much a moral issue that we do not believe it would be in keeping with God's word about the value and dignity of human beings to say, I got a test, this one has a disease, we're going to terminate the pregnancy. That would be a great sin because even those are still created in the image and likeness of God. You know what this means, the equality of human beings? You know what it means? It means you have to love your enemies. Even those who are wicked, 
like mirrors, we were meant to reflect the image and likeness of God, but sin has a, a damaging effect and we're broken now and we distort and we warp the image of God. But even the most damaged and distorted and broken mirror still bears some resemblance to the thing that it's reflecting. And like that, the most wicked or despicable person that you could think of, the most violent mass murderer, the most violent terrorist, still bears value, dignity, and worth because they were created in the image and the likeness of God. Have you thought about that? It means we don't look down on others. It means that we come before God with a tremendous amount of humility. And the fourth thing I want you to see out of the, the doctrine of humanity is this, that male and female are two halves of a whole humanity. Now, for those of you who, who may be single, please don't hear me saying that unless you're married, you're a half of a person. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about big picture at the macro level that God created humanity, male and female, to be together a complementary set that when brought together creates a whole humanity. The whole creation narrative, think about this. If you read through Genesis 1, the whole creation narrative, it goes, God created day and God created night, and God created the light, and God created the dark, and God created the sun, and then God created the moon and the stars. I know I'm getting the order wrong. Just go with me on it, okay? I don't have them memorized off the top of my head in the right order, right? God created the, the birds that fly. God created the, the fish that swim. God created the animals that, that walk, and God created the things that creepy crawl on the ground. And we all kind of wish he maybe had skipped that part. But at the end of the creation narrative, it says God created mankind male and female. The Bible would teach that our engenderedness, our male and femaleness, is not some arbitrary uh, production of random chance. It is by God's design that we are men and we are women. And yes, men and women are equal in God's sight, but they are complementary, meaning that by God's design, there are differences between men and women. And that's a good thing, despite the fact that our culture likes to say that gender is largely irrelevant, I would say to you that no, it is actually a design of God's that we would be male and female. There are certain things that men are called by God to do. There are certain things that women are called by God to do. Let me, let me put it to you this way. No matter how hard I try, I will never carry a baby to term, right? And there are some of you women who are pregnant, caring, expecting, recently gave birth right now, that you have been uniquely designed by God to fulfill that role of motherhood. That's a beautiful and a, a, a praiseworthy thing. We should praise God for that. Men and women are a picture, ultimately, of the gospel. If you look at the end of the book, in Revelation, the, the final stage of human history, it says that Jesus returns, and what's the imagery that's used? A wedding. A wedding. It means that Jesus is the groom and the people of God collectively are the bride and the two come together. I'm sorry, men, if that makes you uncomfortable, but we're the bride of Christ. Let's, let's be men and just, you know, we're the bride of Christ, doggone it, right? I'm just manly enough to tell you the truth, right? We are the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom and the two come together. That, that male and female is a picture of that gospel. Or at the very end of the age, it says that heaven and earth join together. The two shall become one. Do you see how uh, male and female is a picture of that? That is what God has built into the fabric of creation. So, God creates. He makes everything beautiful. He makes everything good. And in his creation, he has one particularly treasured possession, one beautiful creation, man and woman, but then an enemy comes on the scene, Satan or the devil. Let me read this to you. God has an enemy 
known as Satan or the devil. He is not equal to God, but is a created being, an angel who led a rebellion of angels, demons, against God. His mission is to steal, kill, and destroy, and he does so through various means, including deception, accusation, and temptation. Although Satan does have influence and power on the earth today, he has been disarmed by Jesus at the cross. When Jesus returns, Satan will be ultimately defeated and thrown into the lake of fire forever. A couple of main ideas from this, okay? Number one, we do have a real enemy. Again, in our culture, it's not too unpopular or uncommon for people to say that they believe in angels. I actually just heard a song over the ra- on the radio over the weekend where somebody was just singing on, I believe in angels. I don't remember what song it was. It wasn't good. So I didn't pay attention to it. But I remember thinking, I remember thinking, oh yeah, they're singing a song about believing in angels. They would never write a song, I believe in demons. Like they just wouldn't do that, right? Because that's looked at as a relic of medieval, ancient way of thinking. No, it is no more illogical to believe in the existence of Satan and demons than it is to believe in the existence of God and angels. If you believe in one, then you are perfectly free, you are perfectly rational to believe in both. And the Bible presents both. So we do have a real enemy. But number two, you need to understand that Satan is not equal to God. Satan is a created being. It is not, as some Eastern religions teach, that there is an ultimate good and an ultimate evil locked in a conflict between good and evil for all of eternity, and it's just the way the universe is. No. Satan is a created being who rebelled against God, who said, I do not want to follow your sovereign rule and reign, but guess what? I've read the end of the book, and Jesus wins. So Satan loses. That's good news, right? He is not God's equal. That means we don't have to live in paralyzing fear of him. We do not have to live in paralyzing fear of him. One day, Jesus will return for the ultimate defeat of Satan, but his defeat has already been accomplished at the cross. Number three, I want you to see that his primary methods are deception, temptation, and accusation. Jesus said this about Satan. He says when he lies, he speaks his native language. That's just what Satan's talked. It's just always lies. You remember the first time when Satan shows up in Genesis 3? He lies. He says, did God really say? And humanity has plunged into this big mess ever since. He lies. Satan is the father of lies. That's why truth and knowing the word of God is so important. He also operates in temptation. He says, hey, you see this thing? It's beautiful, isn't it? It will give you satisfaction. The Bible teaches that our ultimate satisfaction is found in God himself, but he tries to trick us. He says, now this is actually more beautiful. This is more desirable. This is more satisfying than God. His other method that he uses is accusation. He speaks to your identity. If you're a Christian, he tries to come along and say, yeah, you're, you're not a very good Christian. You're pretty weak. You, you still sin all the time. You're probably not even really a Christian. To others of you, he would come in and say, you're pretty worthless, you know? You just, you just messed up all the time. You're, just, you're a messed up person. You're pretty worthless. Here's the thing about Satan's lies and his accusations. If you want to tell the most convincing lie, this is not my advice, by the way. I'm just telling you how you could. If you want to tell the most convincing lie, the way to do so is by including a healthy dose of truth. Tell a lot of truth, and then you just twist one little thing. That's the most convincing way to lie or to deceive somebody. And so Satan does that. He comes along and he says, wow, look at you. You're really messed up. You're so sinful. You're weak. You just, you're not worthy. You're not worthy to come before God. And I always think, I like the way Martin Luther approached it. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know what, Satan? I am weak. I am unworthy to come before God. Thank you for the reminder because Jesus only died for weak and unworthy sinners like me. 
on my own, I am unworthy, but Christ died to make me worthy. That Satan's such a punk, he always leaves off the good part at the end, right? There's more information that changes the, the story. And number four, I want you to see that Satan is defeated and yet still dangerous. Colossians 2.15, like I said, Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Colossians 2.15 says that. But in 1 Peter 5.8, it also says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That means that even though Satan is defeated, he is still dangerous. I think of the analogy of, a, of a, maybe a wild animal. I'm not really a hunter. I've never uh, been hunting except for maybe once or twice. But I know that when you've shot at an animal, if you hit and wound them, but before they die, they can actually be the most dangerous right then and there because they're just in fight mode. Or you've heard me use this analogy before. In World War II, there was D-Day. That was the day that the, the, you know, Hitler's army was defeated and the war was really, it was the end. But between that day and, and a year later when the final treaty was signed, there still were real bullets flying. And people really got hurt and people really died. Even though the, the clock was running out, even though it was fourth quarter, we're heading towards the buzzer, the uh, opposing team, the losing team still wants to come around and kick you in the shins, right? So that's a terrible analogy. Forgive me for using it, right? But the idea is that Satan is defeated, but he still has some authority and he's still dangerous. And so we want to be on guard. Now, okay, keeping going. You having fun yet? This is so fun. I love this. God created he made everything perfect and good. He made humanity and his image and likeness special and loved. A tempter comes on the scene, an enemy, and he begins to, to speak lies. And Adam and Eve, our first parents, believe his lies, and they fall into sin. Let me read this to you, the fall. Adam and Eve, our first parents, willingly sinned against God, violating his law in their disobedient act of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because of their sin, all humanity has fallen into sin. And since then, every person is born with an inherited sinful nature. And as such, we find ourselves estranged from our holy and perfect creator, justly deserving of his wrath, inwardly depraved, and utterly incapable of returning to right relationship with God apart from a special work of God's grace in us through Jesus. Our depravity is radical and pervasive, extending to our mind, body, will, and affections. Three things from this. First is this, we are, we face with sin, it's a massive, multifaceted problem. I can hardly speak to you about how big of a problem this truly is. You'll notice that I don't have a Bible verse next to this bullet point. You know why? Because I kind of would need to put the whole Bible next to it. it is, sin is the problem in the Bible. The Bible speaks of sin in a variety of metaphors. It says that sin is a, a transgression, meaning you cross a line that you know you shouldn't go past. The Bible speaks of sin as really trying like to shoot an arrow, but you miss the mark and you just fall short. The Bible speaks of sin as good things that you know you should do, but you don't do them. It's not just the bad things you do, it's the good things that you fail to do. That's sin. The Bible says that you have sinful thoughts. The Bible says you have sinful words. The Bible says that you have sinful motives. Think about this. Sinful motives. How many of you know that you can do a good thing from a really impure heart? Oh, the Bible says that's sin. The Bible goes so far as to say in Romans that anything that is not done from a heart of faith towards Jesus is sin. Anything. You could keep the Ten Commandments, but if not done from a heart of faith to Jesus, the Bible would say that that's sinful. That's a really big problem. Some would even say, wow, the Bible sure seems negative. No, the Bible seems realistic. 
Because part of the problem of sin is that it blinds us to just how big of a problem it is. Number two, sin's result is broken relationship with God and with our fellow man. Sin's result is judgment. And sin's ultimate result is death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Because of these various aspects of what sin is, there are various aspects to what we experience as its consequence. Do you know this? When God created everything perfect, did you know that mankind was never meant to die? We were meant to live forever. Death has entered into the world because of our sin. And number three, I want you to see this. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. I want to take a minute and unpack this, okay? We are sinners by nature. That means that because of Adam and Eve's sin, the disease of sin, as it were, has spread to the entire human race. And every single human being who is born is born with a sinful, fallen nature. That means one out of every one human being will at some point choose sin. All the parents said, amen, right? You see your little kids born, they're, they're so cute, babies, they're definitely born with a, a form and a type of innocence. But listen, I never sat down with my children and said, kids, here is how you take a toy away from someone and yell mine at the same time. Like I never had to give them that lesson. They just figured that one out on their own. That is what it means to have a sin nature. One out of every one will fall into sin. And as I'm fond of saying, if you don't believe me, would love to invite you to serve in our nursery for a couple of weeks on Sunday mornings, right? You can watch it or go to the airport. That's the other place where human sin nature is on display like nowhere else. But then some might say, well, that's not fair. Why am I being held responsible for somebody else's sin? I'm just a victim here. I was just born with a sin nature. I can't help what I would do. No, we're also sinners by choice. Listen, there is no human being who can stand here today before anyone else and say, yes, I have never willingly chosen to violate God's law. We all have chosen to sin, right? And if you don't think so, you're either lying or you're delusional. Remember the song, Remember the song, uh, Spirit in the Sky, from back in the 60s? Uh, remember that song, you're going up to the spirit in the sky? I used to play that song in a classic rock cover band with my parents, which is a different story for a different sermon. But um, I, whenever we get to that line, there's a line in that song that says, I'm not a sinner, I've never sinned, glad I have a friend in Jesus. And I always think, like, man, you need to spend some more time with Jesus, bro. Like, I could never sing that line. I would always have to change it to like, yeah, I'm a really huge sinner and I sin all the time. Really glad I've got a friend in Jesus, right? That's just, I don't know what they were smoking, but that was sinful too, I guess. So listen, we all have sinned by choice. We all have decided by our own will to say, I want things that God has forbidden or I don't want to do things that God has commanded. We are sinners by both nature and choice, Okay. And number four, the last one is this. I want you to see that sin affects everything and everyone. The phrase that we use sometimes is total depravity. Are you familiar with that term, total depravity? Anybody ever heard that term? Okay, total depravity is not in your Bible. It's a theological shorthand for a great deal of biblical teaching. What it means is this. Sin has affected everyone in every way. Some of you might say, well, hold on a second, Aaron. I know, I know some people who are actually really nice. And I know some people, even non-Christians, who are really generous. The, the doctrine of total depravity does not say that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. That is not what it says. Trust me, there's a long way further that you could fall, right? 
But what it does say is that sin has affected every single person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you're affected in every way. Your mind, your will, your body, your emotions. We are all affected in every way. And we are left ultimately in a helpless state. You guys, the doctrine of sin, I mean this sincerely. When we really think about what the fall means and what sin means, it's, it ought to leave us kind of bummed out. It's okay if you feel a little bit of helplessness or depression or hopelessness because rightly understood, this is a hopeless problem. The Bible would go so far as to say that on our own, we are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. But this is where it's all been leading. God creates. God has a special place in his heart for Humans create his image and likeness. A, an enemy comes, a tempter comes. Humanity falls into sin, but God enters in to bring redemption and salvation to his people. This is where we get to the good news. You guys excited for some good news? I hope you need good news because that's all I've got. I don't have some inspirational poem or a tap dance for you. I have good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read what this statement says here. God has graciously offered the gift of salvation to all who would believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Those who believe that he is the son of God, that he died in our place for our sins, and that he rose from the dead will be saved. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve because of our sins and satisfied the righteous wrath of God. And because of his life, his death, his resurrection, all who trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord are restored into right relationship with God. Salvation is a free gift of God and is not attainable by works. Salvation is only found by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's good news, amen? Let me unpack just briefly a few ideas for, the, uh, for you from this. Number one, salvation is only found in Jesus. I think, like, what is this, the 11th unpopular cultural uh, idea that I've now unpacked here tonight? Salvation is exclusively found in Jesus Christ. He himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to experience reconciled relationship with the Father except through me. And listen, I, I am not saying that to try to offend anyone's sensitivities. I'm not trying to offend you, but if there, if there is something that God has spoken of as being true, then it is profoundly unloving for me not to tell you the truth. It is loving for me to tell you that salvation is only found in Jesus. Number two, I want you to see that salvation is only by his grace. It is not by our works. The word grace means a gift. And Ephesians 2 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. I would like to say it to some of you, I don't know who you are, but some of you here may think that you are a Christian simply because you try to do good things and go to church occasionally. And I would lovingly want to tell you that that is not the definition of a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who is better than others because they try harder. A Christian is someone who has come to the end of themselves, said, I am hopeless without some help, and then cries out for the mercy and the grace of the Savior, Jesus. That's a true Christian. Some of you may need to wrestle with the thought that you're not actually a Christian just because you try hard to do the right thing. No, you're a Christian if you cry out and say, I really need a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And number three, I want you to see that salvation is a multi 
multifaceted gift. Remember when I said that I could probably not over-exaggerate how big of a problem sin is? Well, I know for a fact that I cannot over-exaggerate how beautiful and how great the gift of God's salvation is. If you're a note taker, here's the lightning round. You ready? I'm gonna blast through nine of these really fast. There are nine elements at least that are involved in salvation, aspects of salvation that can cause us to rejoice in how great it is. You ready? The first one is this, predestination. Don't let that word freak you out or trip you up. It simply means that God predestines you for salvation, okay? If, if you look in the Bible, it means that God chooses those who will belong to him. And listen, if in the New Testament, let me say it this way, in the New Testament, we never see the doctrine of predestination taught so that we could try to sit around and figure out who is chosen by God to be saved and who's not chosen by God to be saved. I'll say it strongly. If you use those doctrines of predestination to think or to judge others that way, then you ought to be ashamed. That is not how the Bible presents it. Rather, the Bible presents the doctrine of predestination so that those of you who are Christians can know that you were chosen by God. You did not get into heaven by some side door or some fluke or some technicality that God loves you and he wants you and you are his by his choice. That is what the doctrine of predestination means for us as Christians, that we rejoice that our salvation is not up to our own efforts, but it is by God's sovereign power that we are saved. So let it be an encouragement to you. Don't let it freak you out. Let it be a great joy to you. And how dare we try to use this doctrine to say, well, they're probably not, they're probably not elect. They're probably not predestined to be saved. No, no, we rejoice that God wants us and loves us. All right, I said I would go quick. I need to go quicker. Number two, I'm, just, I'm about to start preaching. Watch out. Number two, the gospel call. This means that the message of the good news of Jesus goes out. Romans says, how will they believe if they don't hear? So part of salvation is hearing this beautiful message, this good news of Jesus. Number three, regeneration. This means being made alive spiritually, or some of you have heard the phrase born again. That's what it means, regenerated. The Bible teaches that we, apart from God, we're spiritually dead, and he makes us spiritually alive. Number four, justification. This is a legal term. It means that we are not only declared to be not guilty of the sins that we have committed, but that God the judge hammers the gavel down and says, I declare you to be righteous like my son Jesus. That is good news. It means our sins get given to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness that he earned gets given to us. That's justification. It's a legal term. Number five, salvation includes redemption and ransom. This is a financial term, meaning that we were purchased out of slavery. We were brought into freedom. That at one point in our lives, we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to death. But Jesus, through his blood, has paid it all. Jesus has paid the ultimate price for our freedom. We're ransomed. We are redeemed. Number six, it means that there's reconciliation. It means that right relationship with God has been restored. What once was broken is now brought back into alignment. Number seven, I love this one. It means that it's not just any right relationship. It's the relationship of adoption. You guys, this one gets me every single time that God adopts us into his family. L listen, there are many people in my life who have sinned against me and I have forgiven them. But not one have I invited to join my family and be my child, okay? That is amazing that God would say to us who have sinned against him, who have violated his law, he said, I forgive you and now I want you to come and be a part of my family. I wanna give you a share of the inheritance of the riches of heaven, the same share that Christ Jesus, my one and only son himself gets. Does that melt anybody else's brain besides mine? That one is just 
So hard for me to fathom that God would adopt us. Number eight, our salvation includes sanctification. It means that we are being made holy. This is the the present outworking of our salvation, that that in the past God saved us, and in the future when, when the day of judgment comes, we will be saved, but right now God is saving us. We are being saved. We are being made like God. We are being made holy. And then lastly, glorification, the final step of salvation, the end. It means the ultimate removal of sin and the resurrection of the body. How many of you look forward to your friends and your spouse and your loved ones being free from sin, right? Everybody ought to raise their hand on that one. How many of you look forward to the day when our bodies are made new and we're given resurrection bodies like Jesus, free from aches, pains, disease, diabetes, cancer, all of those things done away with? Anybody else excited about that? That is part of our salvation. Part of our salvation is the redemption of the body. There's probably more, but those are the nine I wanted to highlight for you. That is how great of a salvation we have received. God created, he loved humanity, we bought into the enemy's lie, but God sent Jesus into the world to live, die, and rise again that we might be saved. That'll preach. That's some good doctrine, I think. And if it's rightly done, how should we respond? Let me close with a couple of quick thoughts for you. As we look at these different doctrines, let me just give some, some suggestions of maybe how we should respond. I think there's, there's others besides this, but these are ones that I think would be important for us to think of. As we think of the doctrine of creation and humanity, I think we ought to respond with humility like the psalmist, what is man? We also should respond with worship and with awe because later in that psalm, David says, oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we consider the doctrine of Satan and demons, I think we should respond with an alertness, a, a, a being on guard, a sober-mindedness that says we don't want to get caught off guard. We don't want to be uh, uh, you know, bitten by the lion, as it were. We need to value the truth, understanding that we don't have fight or contend against people. We, we wrestle against the spiritual powers that want to lie and to deceive. Number three, when we consider the doctrine of sin and the fall, I think it's right for us to have some tears and for our hearts to be devastated and to long for a savior. I think of the words of Paul in Romans 7 after he gets done talking for a long time about how big the problem of sin is. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And number four, salvation. How should we respond in salvation? How about everything? How about all of it? How about gratitude? How about joy? How about thanksgiving? How about just, here God, here's my whole life. Here's everything I am, everything I got. You can have it. How about singing? How about celebrating? How about living lives of sharing this good news with others? There's a lot of ways that we could respond to this doctrine of salvation. Again, it's not just doctrine for doctrine's sake, but it's doctrine for the sake of worship. And it's in that line I want to call us now to a time of response. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of tithes and offerings. And we give financially as an act of worshipful response. If you are a guest here, you're not under any obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like, but you're not under any uh, obligation. I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward. I'll just remind you, if you want to give, just some ways to give for, for those of you who maybe uh, are interested. You can give cash or check here in service. You can give online, uh, like with your debit card at soundcitybiblechurch.com give. Or some of you more uh, technologically minded might want to do the text to give thing and the numbers there on your screen or on your, your handout as you came in. 
While they're collecting the offering, I'd like to read some discussion questions for you, things to talk about this week in your homes and in particular in your community groups. Talk about this. Why is the doctrine of creation so important? Why is it important to distinguish between essential and non-essential aspects of this doctrine? Number two, why is the doctrine of humanity important and how might it or how should it affect the way that we treat others? Get practical with this. Number three, why is the doctrine of Satan and demons important and how should it affect the way we live our lives? Number four, here's a good one. What does it mean that we are sinful by both nature and choice? If you're looking for a good conversation starter on the lunch table this week, I'd recommend that one for you, right? At work, your coworkers are gonna love you. Next one, number five. Uh, talk about the term total depravity, what it means and what it does not mean, okay? Number six, which aspect of the doctrine of salvation, whether that's predestination or adoption, which one stood out to you most? And maybe uh, to give yourself a little homework, I don't mean that uh, in a bad way, but in a good way, identify one of those areas for some further study and reflection this week. And number seven, this is a heart check. How would you know if any of these doctrines are leading you to pride instead of worship? And how can you and how can, you, how can others help you guard your heart against pride? What would it look like for you to say, yeah, I'm probably not worshiping. I'm just building up a doctrinal piggy bank of information. We're also going to respond with a celebration of the Lord's table, with a celebration of communion, where all who are Christians take the bread and, and dip it into the wine as a, a, a commemoration of the death that Jesus died in our place and for our sins. If you're a Christian, even if you're a visitor, you are welcome to join us at the table. If you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, then my plea for you is become a Christian tonight. Give your sin to Jesus. Receive his grace. Receive his love. Receive his righteousness. And allow the sins, the wrong things that you've done to be forgiven and come take communion tonight for the first time as a Christian. And maybe one of these doctrines stirred your heart in a particular way and you think of the creation, the doctrine of creation. As you take the bread and you dip it in the wine, you say, this was my creator who died for me. Maybe that's one way you could respond tonight. We're going to sing. The band is going to lead us in a time of singing and rejoicing. And I would encourage you, let's let tonight be a time of great rejoicing because we were spiritually dead, but we've been made spiritual alive in Christ Jesus. That's worth celebrating, amen? That's worth celebrating, amen? I hope you guys are ready to sing and to celebrate. I'll invite you to stand. We'll respond to Jesus when you're ready. Let's stand and I'll pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Once again, thank you that we can see these doctrines, not just as truth propositions to be believed, but as a God to be worshiped and as a relationship to be experienced and lived out. I ask and pray right now, God, that you would fill our hearts to sing and to worship with joy, to sing and worship with exceeding joy, because Jesus, the tomb is empty and your love has been poured out into our hearts. We pray all of these things in the good and precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.